Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Religion. I'm your co-host, Hilary Kale. Black Pentecostal breath is innovative and lyrical, challenging and beautiful. Ashan Crawley brings together Black studies, queer theory, theology and continental philosophy to theorize the ways in which what he calls otherwise worlds of possibility can serve as disruptions against marginalization and violence and also produce possibilities for flourishing. Examining the whooping, shouting, noise-making, and tongue-speaking of Black Pentecostalism, Crawley reveals how these aesthetic practices allow for the emergence of alternative modes of social organization. In the process, he does much more, suggesting a hermeneutics, a methodology for reading culture when people are under siege. Ashan Crawley is Assistant Professor of Religious Studies and African American Studies at the University of Virginia. I'm pleased to welcome him to NBIR. Hello. Hello. Thank you. So I wanted to begin where we often do at NBIR, which is asking you what brought you to this study? Why this topic and why this approach? So Black Pentecostal Breath, um, the aesthetics of possibility, I believe in the sort of um, acknowledgments or the introduction, um, perhaps. I can't remember which one. I say it's a love letter to sort of Pentecostalism. I come to the topic because I grew up um, in a Pentecostal congregation in New Jersey. My father is a pastor of a church and my mother is a preacher in the church. And my brother and myself um, were both being groomed to be preachers. And um, we were also being groomed to be pastors. And so I had gone to seminary and really sort of the, the, the place of Pentecostalism in my social life and sort of my rearing and in the way that I sort of see the world, um, Pentecostalism has been like the grounding feature. It's the, the music of the church and the, the sociality of the church. These are things that are, have always been sort of things that have um, produced me as possible, actually. It's sort of this religious, social, emotional, um, musical, sonic, um, affective sort of zone that allowed me to sort of think my relation to the world and so the, the project Black Pentecostal Breath is really me trying to wrestle with, struggle with, and think about sort of the, 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 the most the generativity of being and thinking through the world in a Pentecostal way, but also some of the sort of delimitations of Pentecostalism. I um, am queer identified. I um, am committed to sort of a Black womanist and a Black feminist hermeneutic and a Black feminist and a Black womanist sort of way of life um, and really trying to think with sort of queer possibility and queerness and feminism are not things that are typically acceptable in sort of the Black Pentecostal world or in the Pentecostal world at large or even in like most Christianity and in most religious traditions. And so for me, really trying to think about um, what has been sort of the affective possibility that was made 
that was made evident to me by inhabiting Pentecostalism while at the same time thinking about the ways that we can critique and think to critique sort of Pentecostalism in order to produce an occasion to think about how can one um, inhabit any kind of zone that is both that which gives us a way to think our relation to world while at the same time really trying to think about the things that delimit the things that sort of produce obstacles and the things that are in those very social worlds that also are against our flourishing. And so Pentecostalism um, is something that is musical and it's, it's, it's loud and it's rambunctious and it's very, very fleshly, while at the same time it targets the flesh as the thing, the conduit that is in need of conversion, the thing that is most in need of change. Um, and it typically targets the thing called sexuality, the thing called sexual orientation, the thing called gender identity, and so trying to really think about how there is an occasion for, on the one hand, the sort of liberatory practice of praise and worship that's all about, you know, using the flesh as the conduit through which the Holy Spirit um, is made evident, while at the same time, that same very social world through theology and doctrine and, and philosophizing the practice also targets the body as the thing that is a problem. And so really trying to, to grapple with those that duality is really what the project is trying to do. And I came to the project because as a child, I was a singer and as a teenager, I was a choir director and a musician for the church. And when I became sort of um, an older teenager and a, and a young adult, I was studying to become a pastor or a preacher and a pastor. And so for me, there's a very sort of personal investment in trying to think through this duality, this sort of contradictory relation between sort of liberation, but also delimitation that the world presents. And be because I have experienced it sort of on a personal level, I really wanted to just think about and sort of, um, sort of consider more um, in depth the, the duality that exists in this world, not because it is a unique kind of duality, but to think about the sort of contradictory nature of various kinds of social worlds in which we inhabit the ways that various social worlds can be both liberatory, um, but also how they produce their own kinds of delimitations, their own obstacles that we have to overcome, that we have to think through, that we have to rigorously interrogate. And so that's really what sort of brought me to the project. I love that you called it a, a love letter, and it absolutely is. It sort of reads like that, a kind of queer love letter, we might say. Um, and you write at one point, it's such a beautiful line, that rather than arrive at any kind of firm conclusions, which is how maybe some of our listeners think about intellectual projects, you're going to tarry with concepts. And, yes. you're, and you're also going to, in this book, tarry with with sounds and with enfleshment and with all of those practices that I think just came through in your answer. Yes. One thing I did want to clarify or ask you to clarify for our listeners is where this might fit in terms of scholarship. Now there's a number of different places because this is a firmly transdisciplinary kind of project, but right from the beginning, you make a claim for black study, um, capital B, capital S, which runs parallel to, but as you note, differs from Black studies as a university discipline. So what do you mean by that capital B, capital S Black studies? What's the intervention you're making? Well, one of the things I'm really trying to guard against is the way that we can transform things into objects of disciplinary knowledge. Um, 
So I, I use the word black stud or the phrase or the term black study because I read a lot of Fred Moten and Stefano Harney. They have a book called The Undercommons, um, which really is the first place that I encountered the sort of phrase black study. Black study for me is a mode of thinking. It is a strategy for producing thought. It is not a discipline. Um, disciplinary knowledge as we get it in the university, so sociology, philosophy, theology, religious studies, um, women's studies, women and gender studies, um, queer studies. These are all sort of disciplines. And then medicine, um, uh, uh, physics, uh, chemistry, all of these disciplines are sort of predicated upon the idea that there can be sort of categorically distinct ways to think relation to different worlds. And so for me, the, the thing that I'm trying to get at by thinking about Black study is that I'm trying to intervene into the very way that in sort of academia we are taught thought is produced, um, that thought is kind of, that there could be a possibility of producing thought that is not related to a, a, an entire range of ways of thinking our relation. And so um, I'm constantly trying to think about sort of the, the transdisciplinary nature of Black study, which would be something that would not recoil from thinking about physics and thinking about music and thinking about sort of the flesh and thinking about chemistry. Like, I'm trying to, 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 to sort of consider, is there a way, is there a mode of study that tries to open itself up to and make itself vulnerable to various affective registers rather than trying to produce itself as a discipline that can be sort of constituted in the university in some sort of easy way. And that's really what I'm trying to get at. On that note, as you're talking about what it means to produce knowledge and more specifically the kind of knowledge that we're disciplined into producing and reiterating at the university, you really tackle these questions about normative Western Christian theology and continental philosophy. As you were thinking about and then writing Black Pentecostal Breath, are there any particular thinkers who either you really felt like you were writing against or who you were really thinking with? Um, I think that I, I'm typically writing with people and not really against, because I just think it's more fun to <laughs> think with as opposed to against. And so folks that I think with are Saidiya Hartman, who wrote Scenes of Subjection, Terror, Slavery, and Self-Making in 19th Century America, which is one of the most important books, um, it seems to me, in African-American studies, Africana studies, Black studies, um, as, um, as a discipline, sort of as constituted by um, universities and colleges. Um, so Saidiya Hartman Horton Spillers, which is just one of the most important sort of Black feminist thinkers, it seems to me, um, who wrote this amazing essay titled Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, an American Grammar Book, which was, I think, published in around about 1987. She also has another essay titled Interstices, A Small Drama of Words, which, you know, these are, these are two thinkers that have been really, really important to me. Sylvia Winter, who has an amazing and very, very dense um, and very, very theoretical essay, um, Unsettling the Coloniality of Being, Power, Truth, and Freedom, um, which is another one of these things that I've, I'm constantly sort of thinking about and thinking with as I'm writing. Um, Michelle Foucault has this lovely, um, very, very short, probably like three and a half page interview that I think he gave in 1983, but don't quote me on it, somewhere in the 1980s, early 1980s, 
the title of the interview is Friendship as a Way of Life. And friendship as a way of life is really trying to think about the the anti-institutional nature of friendship and the way that friendship, um, specifically in that S or in that interview, the way that queer friendship between um, cisgender men can model what it means to be anti-institutional, what it means to have to, what he calls, invent from A to Z um, a different kind of relation in the world. And so that kind of inventiveness, that sort of spontaneity that is necessary is something that has influenced the way that I think my own relation to Pentecostalism. And then there's Fred Moten and there's um, um, Nahum Chandler, there's Daphne Brooks, there's Imani Perry, there's so many people, um, Denise Fiera da Silva, um, folks that um, she, Denise da Silva wrote a book toward a global idea of race, has been very, very influ- influential in terms of the way that I think about Western categories of thought and sort of their, the ways that they are produced through the, the exclusions of gendered um, folks how it's produced through the exclusion of racialized peoples, how it's produced through the exclusion of sexual or sexed people, um, that there are certain categories um, of thinking that are produced and that are predicated upon ongoing exclusion of certain kinds of people from this very sort of horizon. And so these are some of the thinkers that I'm thinking with constantly. I definitely like the fact that you want to think with rather than against. But I must say that at certain points in your book, you're kind of biting um, and understandably so when, for example, you mention Hegel's famous line about Africans having no history. And also in general, as you talk about the ways that theologians and perhaps even more than that, philosophers in Europe had assumed that the subject was an individual subject, a a white male subject as well. But that individuality is really something that throughout your book, you're really writing against through your notions of sociality and enfleshment. Uh, Could you flesh that out for us just a little bit? I mean, I think that if I'm writing, if even if I'm writing against Hegel's idea of history, like I'm still writing with him, right? That, That his sort of idea of Africa not belonging to history is what makes possible or is one of the nodal points um, that that is on the way to me being able to make a certain kind of assertion that, well, perhaps being in history is not a thing that should be desirous if the thing that we're also trying to disrupt is sort of this racial um, capitalist logic of um, inequity and exclusion. And so his writing about the thing called history and then the way that Africa, thus the black does not belong inside of it makes possible. Um, the, one of the critiques that I'm trying to make um, when I sort of do this long elaboration of Kantian philosophy in terms of the transcendental aesthetic. And when he's thinking about sort of um, the place of blackness, the place of the African, the place of the slave in sort of the constitution of thinking um, and the way that he can't think really the, the concept of blackness without sort of going to other figures, it seems to me that in, in thinking against him, I'm actually thinking with him or sort of along the flow or in the same path that he is, but also sort of, um, sort of opposite him, not in the same direction that he would go with the same work. But again, like, it's like their sort of philosophizing, their sort of thinking has produced an occasion for me to think of the, the possibility that exists in thinking otherwise, the possibility that exists with actually thinking with folks who have been excluded from these very categories of the thinker, the scholar, the 
the the the knower, the philosopher that that I, I think even while thinking one could say that I'm thinking against them, I, like I'm also at the same time thinking deeply, deeply um, with the things that they have elaborated because the things that they have elaborated has been so, so pernicious um, and has produced so much violence in our current world that it's necessary to actually think with them. And, you know, even when I talk about sort of my problems with the concept of theology or the concept of philosophy and, and you know, even my friends who are studying theology, um, we have ongoing debates about, for me, the, the very concept of theology is untenable in terms of a way to think um, blackness because, you know, I don't presume the categorical distinction of theology is something that we can possibly maintain. And yet I'm reading lots and lots and lots of theologians because the work that they produce, black theology, womanist theology, mujerista theology, indigenous theology, um, queer theology, that these various projects have made possible um, a way for me to think the generativity that is occurring within these sort of modalities of thinking, but also the um, the obstructions, right, that are are also evident by trying to inhabit these zones rather than thinking that the zone or the sort of enclosement of thought itself might be a problem. Does that sort of get closer to Yeah, absolutely. Now I'm going to reread your book and think of it as also a love letter to Kant and Hegel. (laughs) um, That way it's not a love letter to Kant. (laughs) Just joking. (laughs) So, So let's get to breath, shall we? I feel like I should pause here and breathe in, breathe out, like you ask your readers to do. So, okay. So breath. What drew you to breath as a metaphor, as an enfleshment, as a transformational moment? Well, because breath is at at first not a metaphor. Um, I'm actually thinking about and trying to think very deeply about the the practice of breathing and what the what the practice of breathing makes available. And so, in the first chapter, when I'm talking about, you know, I begin with stories of flight, stories from. Um, stories of folks who are in, uh, escaping enslavement. And the thing that's not common to pun, but the thing that is necessary for each of these stories is breathing, right? That, that, that as, as, as long as you breathe, you have the capacity for a certain kind of resistance. You have the capacity for thought. You have the capacity for movement. And it seems that breath is this thing that is that, is that which animates the flesh. And, it, and breath is the thing by taking in and expel, or taking in air and expelling air, taking in um, oxygen and releasing carbon dioxide, that then we are also practicing something that is common, something that is available to all of us. And, and the things that are common and that are available to all of us typically are also the things that are discarded or that are d- denounced or the things that are um, con- considered to be diminutive, the things that are considered to be unimportant um, and, and aren't necessary for commenting upon. And so what I wanted to do was think about how breathing is this thing in which we all participate and that enlivens the flesh and that makes us, makes us have the capacity for any kind of animative movement. And yet it's not something that is typically the stuff that we talk about. And yet breathing is such an important component in sort of black um, Christian worship and black religiosity. Um, and 
if we listen to the ways breathing happens in Pentecostal churches, therein perhaps we find an example of the intensity with which breathing is taken as sort of um, a fact of life. And and paying attention to the intention uses of breathing then becomes an occasion to think more generally about how breath is necessary for all kinds of performances, all kinds of productions, not just the ones that take place in Pentecostal churches, but that breathing becomes this, this fact with which we must contend to think about sort of the, 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 the generativity of living itself. And there's such a wonderful tie-in to, to that moment of Genesis for Christians, which, of course, they get from the Hebrew Bible, but this notion of pneuma, right, pneumatology, Greek for breath, or in Hebrew, ruach, God's animating spirit that's so fundamental in Pentecostalism. So maybe we should turn for a moment to those listeners who actually aren't familiar with Pentecostalism um, or Azusa Street. What is it? Give us a little bit of background. So Pentecostalism was sort of, Sort of short explanation is, and I choose the the April 1906 moment um, for very specific political reasons. There were other moments that preceded the April 1906 moment, but I choose this moment specifically because it was intentionally black, and um, not just black people. But what I mean is that the practices were accepted as black practices of praise and worship. So in April of 1906 was um, um, considered to be the Azusa Street Revival, which was a revival that took place in a tumble-down shack on the street named Azusa um, in Los Angeles, California, that was headed or led by a William Seymour. William Seymour was from um, Louisiana and had moved to several places. Um, Most previous, before his move to Los Angeles, he was in Texas, studying with um, a person named William Parham. Um, William Parham was a white man. Um, William, I'm sorry, Charles Parham was a white man. William Seymour was a black man. And Charles Parham was teaching people about the experience as what they were calling it of Pentecost, which was the desire for um, what the apostles in the book in the Bible, the Acts of the Apostles had experienced, which was the descent of the Holy Spirit um, on the 50th day um, celebration, which was called the Pentecost celebration. And so they were studying in Texas in order to have this experience, um, which they were calling a third work of grace, um, first salvation, then sanctification, which is making your life clean, and then having this experience of Pentecost, which is the speaking in tongues, which some thought to be the, the seal of a believer to say that, Now you know fully that you have been saved and you have been sort of claimed by God. And now you have the spirit of God. You have the Ruach or you have the Numa living inside you, which is called the Holy Spirit. And so um, William Seymour was studying with Charles Parham, um, with other um, folks too, folks that were praying and, and reading scripture with the hope of having this experience of um, what's called speaking in tongues. And um, William Seymour felt that he was called um, to Los Angeles. He had prayed and prayed and said, the Lord told me to go to Los Angeles. Charles Parham pretty much forbade him to go to Los Angeles. And William Seymour, we can say, disobeyed Charles Parham, his teacher, 
um, and went to Los Angeles anyway. It's important to note that Charles Parham, um, because of the segregation that was taking place in the South in the in the early 1900s, William Seymour was not allowed to pray with or be in the same room um, as the other white folks who were learning about this third movement of the spirit. And so he leaves um, Texas for Los Angeles and he goes to the house of the Asbury's whose first names I cannot remember right now, but it's Ruth Asbury and her husband. And they're having this prayer meeting and someone has the experience of speaking in tongues and people begin to hear about this experience that's taking place in the house of the Asbury's. And so people began to gather at the house of the Asbury's um, in droves, hearing about this experience and praying for this experience. And so they could not any longer congregate at the house of the Asbury's because there were too many of them. And so they go to Los or they go to the Azusa street um, tumble down shack, which they named the apostolic faith mission. And they end up um, having a three years long revival in this place and in 1906, in April, um, April 19th, the Los Angeles Times came to the building and or they published an article about coming to the building, I think the night before. The name of the article is um, Weird Babble of Tongues, right? And so what was happening in, um, in, the, in the Apostolic Faith Mission were that people were coming, they were praying, they were tarrying, they were waiting in quiet and in loud praise at the same time for this experience of speaking in tongues. And people had come from all over the country then to, and all over the world actually, to have this experience of speaking in tongues. And that's what sort of Pentecostalism sort of um, is predicated upon is this idea that not only will one be saved, but one can also have this very enlivened, very fleshly experience of speaking in tongues. And there's a lot of debate about does one have to have this experience in order to prove that one has the Holy Spirit? But the idea is that speaking in tongues is not something that is denounced. Speaking in tongues is something that is not sort of discardable, but it's something that they have to think with. And as you note in the book, when journalists are coming and they're covering this event that's happening, they're calling it Negro practices as they're yes. watching people speak in these tongues and and flail on the floor and do all the kinds of things that was uh, showing that they had the spirit. Yes, very much. Um, it was codified as, you know, doing Negro things, Negroisms, crude Negroisms, beasts bestial practices. Charles Parham eventually came to the Azusa Street Revival to see what was happening and denounced everything that was happening and was most um, upset about the white people who were worshiping with the black congregants and who were engaging in the same sort of fleshly practices. He, he said that these are not, um, these practices are not a result of the Holy Spirit. These practices are a result of you all sort of giving yourselves over to what the Negroes are doing. So for sort of the political um, uh, understanding of race and, and differentiation, I choose the Azusa Street Revival as sort of the mark of sort of the, the beginning of the, the global Pentecostal movement and not Charles Parham because the Azusa Street Revival was capacious, it was imaginative, it was intentionally expansive, it was intentionally interracial, and really trying to think about 
um, or think against sort of the racial structures of the time. However, the tradition of blackness that you're talking about in a much, much broader sense, this disruption against marginalization and violence, that long, of course, predates Azusa, as you note. And in chapter one, where you deal with breath explicitly, you work Ida B. Wells Barnett into the chapter as a major figure. This is someone who I'm sure a lot of our listeners know about. What brought you to focus on her? Uh, How did you decide to open the book with her. Well, I think that one of the things that Ida B. Wells' um, campaign and her work and what in a Christian register we could call her ministry was about was really thinking about the, the flesh of Blackness and how the practices of anti-Black racist violence and violation was an attempt to interdict or steal or take away the capacity for Black breathing in a very very sort of material, non-metaphorical way that right. she was campaigning against lynching, or that was, was the most campaign- famous. She was campaigning against, you know, lynching practices in in these various um, places in the United States. And lynching practices is most notable and most known for, even though it wasn't the only way, but is most notable for, or most known for, sort of the rope, the noose with which um, people would be hung. In a, in a literal kind of stealing of the capacity to breathe. And so for me, I really wanted to think about um, folks who had answered and who had thought about sort of what it meant to, bleed, to, to breathe while Black and how is breathing while Black itself a cause for consternation to a world that is predicated upon exclusion. And so Ida B. Wells, for me, then becomes this very important figure because the work that she's trying to do is to recover the breath and to say that the breath um, in Black life is something that we have to cherish, that we have to take seriously, and that we have to campaign for, that we have to really, really... um, we have to cherish in, 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 in very intentional kinds of ways. And, and the, the way that she sort of takes then um, the journalism of, of white people and uses their own writing against them becomes then an occasion for me to think about what it means to participate in a common sort of store, right? She, she takes what is common, what is available, um, she takes what is breathed out by white journalists through their pen and she takes it and she targets it against them in her campaign to say, like, I'm just going to recount to you the things that your journalists have written about, the things that you all have done to people who have been breathing while black and the, well, the ways that you have tried to stop folks from breathing while black. And so that's what I'm really trying to think with when I think with Ida B. Wells. The next two chapters, chapter two and three, are sort of bookends, we might say, uh, dealing with uh, the term that you use, which is choreosonic, Um, so movement and sound. The first part is chapter two, shouting, which is movement. Could you explain to us a little bit about that term, choreosonic, and also how you take that up in the second chapter? So choreosonic is this word that I sort of join together choreography and sonicity to think about movement and sound as constantly being co-constituted because the project in general is trying to think against categorical distinction as a possibility. And so in the same way that I'm trying to think about black study as the occasion for disrupting normative concepts of 
categories of thinking like philosophy, theology, sociology, anthropology, musicology that are disciplinary kinds of knowledges. I'm actually trying to think against sort of the, the disciplining of the flesh that would presume that one could move without making sound or that one could sound without making um, movement, that the choreosonic is a word that is really trying to announce the fact of the co-constitution of movement and sound together. And I think that I produced chapter two and chapter three as failures of the very capacities to talk about shouting as movement and noise as sound as opposed to each other. Because what keeps happening in chapter two, for example, is when I'm talking about shouting, I'm talking about or trying to think about the choreography of of movement in Pentecostal churches that is called shouting, um, the sort of dancing that happens, the spirited dancing that occurs on the dance floor in the church. Um, but it's called shouting, something that uh, that happens with typically we think with the mouth, something that happens with the vocal cords, something that erupts from the chest and that moves out from the mouth. And so the very idea that shouting is a word that sort of carries this residue, even though it's supposed to be something that is choreographic, it automatically carries this residue of the sonic that is also occurring at the same time. And so in chapter two, trying to think about shouting, trying to think about sort of a long history of sort of black choreographies in religious spaces. So I'm thinking about the the, the shout around the Kaaba or the movement um, of this, or mo- movement of Muslims around the Kaaba, um, sort of this black object that is supposed to be the sacred object in Islam, where you're supposed to move around this in a circular fashion, right? And I'm trying to think about the relationship of that movement circularly, uh, or that circular movement to the circular movement that happens in Sufi Islam, in terms of dervish shouting, in terms of dervish movements, dervish whirling, trying to think about that relation then to the the ring shout that occurs in the antebellum era in places like South Carolina and Georgia, which are also counterclockwise movements about the movement of the feet that are shuffling on the ground. But that movement of the feet that are shuffling on the ground is always this thing that sounds out too. It's never a movement that occurs as opposed to sound. It is movement that occurs with sound and sound that occurs because movement has happened. And so then the shouting that takes place in Pentecostal churches then becomes a def- another way to think about the way that sound and movement are constantly being co-constituted. And that's what that chapter is really trying to do is say that the very word choreosonic is trying to announce this, this deep, um, intense interrelation and that to, to even try to talk about it as sort of this thing that is separable the sonic from the choreo is a is an impossibility. It really reminded me that even though I will often, for example, when I'm teaching, will often refer to the Methodist shouts, um, you know, in the 19th century, this chapter really reminded me that, of course, that terminology was not, or I shouldn't say of course, but it wasn't, that terminology was not actually normal for me, natural for me. It took a number of years of being disciplined into thinking about being able to talk about a shout as something that didn't necessarily have shouting involved. And sometimes my students have asked me about that, but this chapter really brings at home this choreosynicity, as as you say. What about chapter three then called noise, uh, much more clearly sonic, I suppose. Um, (laughs) But you combine these questions about noise and respectable ways, I, I should 
say I, I just did a air quote there, uh, quote unquote, respectable ways of speaking and singing. You combine this with this discussion of three Jennies, Marx's wife, um, and then Jenny, a slave woman, and Jenny Evans Moore, and Harriet Jacobs also is a key presence in this chapter. Can you tell me a little bit about how all of this comes together, these women, this notion of respectability, and these questions about noise? Well, because noise is the, is the, is disrespectful. Um, noise is the thing that we try to reduce. It's the thing that we try to gather up and remove um, in order to hear more clearly, in order to hear more precisely, in order to have a more intense and affective sort of relation. Noise has to be remediated. Noise becomes the inhibition to thought. You know, we typically try to gather in, in like libraries, for example, we try to reduce the noise so I can read more clearly, so that I can, you know, write the paper more clearly, that we're constantly sort of being inundated with the way that noise is constituted as a problem of thinking. And so for me, I wanted to think about the way noise is a racialized category. And so really trying to do this sort of slow reading of how during the antebellum period specifically, um, music and sound that was made by racialized figures was categorized as noise because it emerged from the racialized other, right? That the, the racialized other is the occasion to call it noise and thus to call it noise is to call it the thing that is also in need of remediation, just like the racialized other is the one in need of remediation. And for me, the one that sort of carries and the one that sort of um, constitutes most forcefully sort of what it means to sort of be the grounds for a certain set of practices while also being the thing that is also constantly discardable um, in sort of Western theology, Western philosophy, Western sort of man is like the, the, the place of the black woman. And here I'm really thinking very intensely with folks like Saidia Hartman um, and people like Horton Spillers, because what they present to me are ways to say that the black woman is is like this disrespected category, this this category. And so I really wanted to think with folks like Harriet Jacobs, and I really wanted to think with Jenny um, von Westphal and Marx, who is Marx's wife, not because she's a black woman, but because of the way that she understands a certain kind of relation to discardability and the way that she announces her relationship to Marx as this affective thing that is also an intellectual practice is something that I was trying to get at. And the way that um, the, the slave woman that was named Jenny and the way that sort of she refused to apologize and she refused to take um, responsibility for violence that people had said that she had done even to the point of her death, right? That she refused a certain kind of notion of her discardability by, by making a claim for her personhood, which led to her death, and even the person, so Jenny um, Moore, who would become Jenny Seymour, her sort of inhabitation of Pentecostalism and her noise-making becomes the grounds for her movement to the piano, becomes the grounds for thinking about Pentecostal movement as like this totally saturated sonic thing, this thing that is constantly sort of gathering up and producing noise in the service of praise, right? And so for me, I, I was just trying to think with um, figures who are discardable, figures who we don't think of as thinkers. Um, I think there's something very moving and something very uh, almost comical 
um, about the way Harriet Jacobs inhabits the loophole of retreat, that she is writing letters to the man that owns her and she's sending the, or she's saying that these letters are being sent from places in the North as if she has escaped. And she's taunting, it seems to me, the person that owns her because this person thinks that she's far, far away, miles away when she's actually just above him and she can hear him reading the letters. That there's something. She's, she's hiding in an attic. She's, for, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with Harriet Jacobs, she's an escaped slave woman hiding in a very small space, as you, as you make clear in the book. It's a crawl space, a right? crawl she, space, yeah. She's hiding in this crawl space. And yet she's writing these letters as if they are coming from places in the North. And there's something very taunting about that. And I, I mean taunt in, in the sense of she's playing with this man. Like he's the one that thinks he's in control because of a political economy that is fundamentally anti-Black, that's fundamentally anti-Indigenous, that is fundamentally anti-woman. And yet she has figured out ways in order to solicit from this particular um, political economy a method for using the fact of her own being noise, the thing that is discardable. She uses that as an occasion to actually produce um, a way to resist and um, to produce um, almost comic relief against him. And I don't say comic relief in order to be like, oh, enslavement isn't funny or enslavement was this funny practice at all, I think it's the exact opposite. What it does is it sharpens the fact that we have to figure out that people who were thought to be nothing and who were thought to have no intellectual possibility, no intellectual horizon, no intellectual capacity, were actually producing deep and rigorous and, 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 and collective improvisational thinking that actually produced the occasion for imagining that we could be otherwise than we are. And that by giving attention to folks like Harriet Jacobs and Jenny Von Westphalen and the, the slave woman named Jenny and to Jenny um, Moore, Seymour, that what we do is we actually think about what does it mean to produce social, or what does it mean to produce thought as a social thing, as a collective thing, and as a thing that takes noise seriously as something that we can't discard, but that is something that we have to think with and that we have to sit with and that we have to be with. And this connects to an underlying theme that runs throughout the book, which is that Black Pentecostal breath is an intellectual movement that it can't be simply discarded as, you know, for example, the journalists uh, covering Azusa Street, simply discarding it as something bestial or something that only happens with the body, right? But it is always as you note, happening through movement, through breath, and is also, there's a politics to it and there's an intellectual intervention in it yeah, as well. Yeah, that's, that's really the argument. <laughs> <laughs> I just summed it up. Now, no one needs to read the book. No, no, everyone <laughs> needs to read the book. Not only because the arguments are interesting, but it's also written really, really beautifully. So there, anyway, that's my plug for people to buy it. <laughs> You talk about, in the context of the Jennies as well as Harriet Jacobs, you talk about this politics of avoidance, which is different, as you note, than embarrassment, right? A, a turning away from noisiness that is not respectable. What what do you mean by that? What kind of politics are we talking about? I think, you know, I keep reading after, you know, you write the book and then you keep reading. I think I mean more poetics than politics. Um, what I just mean is that, that, 
So there's this this phrase that we often use, crisis averted, and I talk about this a lot in the book, that, you know, a, if a crisis is averted, then the thing that we are calling a crisis is only a thing that is called a crisis because it didn't occur, right? And so if the crisis was averted, then the thing itself isn't a crisis any longer. And so what is the thing that, um, what is the thing before it is called crisis? What is the thing um, what is the sort of social life of the thing before it is averted? What is the life of the thing that has been averted? And so I'm thinking about the ways that theology and philosophy and history as categories of thinking actually have an aversion to or have averted the black object, how it has averted blackness. And so f- through averting blackness and through averting the black object, I want to think about what is the thing then if the thing that has been averted um, has has not actually been touched or has not been grasped or has not been actually engaged in terms of the, the collective improvisational intellectual practice of that thing. And so when I talk about sort of a politics of avoidance, what I'm really trying to think about is how the thing that has been averted avoids the very claim that aversion would have made on it. And so... I'm thinking very specifically, like, you know, if the ones who are told that they are noisy and need to stop worshiping in that noisy way because noise is an anti-intellectual practice, well, they avoided, on the one hand, the very claim that noise is anti-intellectual. But on the other hand, how are they also producing noise as an occasion to think against and to avoid the very claim about noise being anti-intellectual, that is sort of a normative practice of religion, a normative practice of theologizing, a normative practice of philosophizing, which is also to say like a white European gaze understanding of theology and philosophy and history. How have they actually avoided that in order to produce a dense and sort of um, capacious and an imaginative world of noise making against the imposition of sort of quietude that they're supposed that they're told that they are supposed to produce. And so really for me, the politics of avoidance is really trying to name that what has been avoided is a certain formation of life um, that is normative in the service of producing other kinds of existences, alternate strategies for dealing with um, inhabitation of the world. The last chapter takes up tongues, and I love that it is the last chapter because, as you note at one point, undoubtedly for anyone who knows something about Pentecostalism, this is the kind of Pentecostal sound that most readers are going to think of first. So Mm -hmm. you put it last, which is great. It makes people read the whole way through. (laughs) Specifically, you delve into the early questions about just what were these sounds. We brought it up earlier briefly when you were talking about Azusa Street, but there's actually a debate, as you note, in early Pentecostalism between glossolalia and xenolalia. What did these terms mean? Uh, How does this factor into early Pentecostalism? So xenolalia um, is the speaking of another language without any cognitive relation to that language. So speaking Spanish or speaking Hindi or speaking French or speaking, you know, any range of languages, um, Wolof, without having ever learned that language. And one sort of idea of speaking in tongues was that speaking in tongues was xenolalia or sort of what some people called missionary tongues, which were tongues that you would speak in order to convert people, right? That, you know, 
you would be speaking in Spanish, even though you don't know Spanish, because the Holy Spirit is speaking through you in order to have this person hear the hear the, the gospel in their own language in the service of their conversion. Right. And to clarify for folks who don't know Acts very well, the moment of receiving the Holy Spirit is also twinned with the Great Commission, go out and preach to the nations, right? So that's sort of the basis for Xenolalia, I presume? It is the basis for Xenolalia. And then there's Glossolalia, which is, you know, heavenly language. It's it's a, it's a language, but it's not representational. It's not, it's non-linguistic. It's a language that is really communicative between you and the divine world that is used for praise, that is used for personal intimate worship, but that is not trying to sort of convey a very specific message to a specific person or to specific sort of nation um, or a specific sort of language community that is already constituted, that the purpose of glossolalia is really sort of the idea that one is sort of announcing a relation to the divine world without having that relation to the divine world be about a relation to a nation state. And so this is a debate that's taking place because some people do believe that um, speaking in tongues is xenolalia, and then some people do believe that speaking in tongues is glossolalia, and these are two incommensurable ideas of actually what it means to speak in tongues. And in the end, it's glossolalia that that is where most Pentecostals stake a claim. I think most Pentecostals stake a claim on glossolalia because a whole bunch of Pentecostals failed with xenolalia. Right. It doesn't help to show up in Japan or China and to tell them that you really know Japanese or Chinese. And you don't. And you don't. (laughs) That's right. And like people were, you know, people were traveling and they said, the Lord sent me here to minister to you. And they would be speaking, and the, this is comedy to me, actually. The people would, you know, be saying, like, nah, this isn't what you thought it was. Like, this is, you thought this was, <laughs> you you are not speaking Hindi. We don't know what you're saying. But one, this isn't actually working in terms of our conversion at all. But two, this is also just kind of offensive. Because, like, the idea that you could you could think that you could convert me without actually thinking in my language is kind of just a part of a like long-standing colonizing project right and and you know some people were heartbroken over the fact that they would go to these countries that they felt the lord sent them to and did not have the capacity for converting people some people did begin to actually study and learn the languages where they said they had already been gifted to learn the language and then some people gave up altogether Right, and went right back. There's a really great story about some early Canadian Pentecostals who headed out and they were in the a bay in Japan and they were sort of yelling from their ship, trying to ask in what they understood to be Japanese, that they'd been gifted the tongue of Japanese, you know, asking to land the ship. And people just kept refusing, right? Not understanding what they were saying. And they circled around for days and days until I think finally someone did take pity on them, but they ended up returning to Canada shortly after. And you're right, there is a sort of, there's a comedy to it, certainly. But your real point is about identity and the Black Pentecostal refusal of a certain vision of of liberal subjecthood, of a stable identity, of an individualized identity. Um, you take up all those ideas in your crosshairs in this book. I do, because I think that the thing that actually marks the distinction between sort of glossolalia and xenolalia 
is um, sort of a colonizing project. Does one desire to um, to sort of speak the language of the other without having to be adulterated by cognizing in the language of the other, right? That because the people who are in need of conversion were typically folks who are considered to be sort of um, unsophisticated, right? Non-white peoples. And so in order to convert them, I can speak your language, but I don't actually have to think that that the language in which you speak has any cognizing value, that that there is no actual content in terms of thought content in your language. All that is needed is a sort of a kind of surface speaking and through the surface speaking will be um, a surface sort of rendering and a surface hearing of that language. I love the rhythm in this book, which is apt, I suppose. And now that I know that you come from a music background, it makes so much more sense. Partly it comes from the way that you really carefully weave songs and speech and texts into your own writing. And I was thinking there's a moment in the book where you talk about James Baldwin. He's holed up in Switzerland writing and he's sitting there listening to Bessie Smith sing the blues. Did you did you have a soundtrack as you were holed up writing this book? I didn't have a soundtrack necessarily. I have a bunch of YouTube videos that I go to all the time. Um, like what? That I listen to uh, just random church services, honestly. Like um, like people that I talked about in the, in the first chapter, Wanda Lynn Stokes and her preaching, Dorinda Clark Cole and her preaching, um, Iona Locke and her preaching. I listen to... Um, clips of people playing the Hammond organ in Pentecostal churches a lot. I listen to choir singing. So like things like that. Um, I don't write with music though. I can't actually write with music on because I actually kind of get lost in the music. And so it becomes a distraction to the writing, but the right or sort of the music is constantly something that I feel like I'm constantly in relation to and constantly responding to, but I don't actually have like a soundtrack of I'm going to listen to these things while I'm actually producing the, the thing called writing because I actually it becomes a little bit overwhelming for me. <laughs> so students who are listening to this podcast, take note, you should <laughs> shut down YouTube and music, etc., while you work and then turn it on at intervals and get inspired. <laughs> for some people it works. I just, I've never been one that just because I'll start singing or I'll start, I'll be, I'll, I'll happily be interrupted by the music or by the sound in order to, you yes. know, I'm, I am like that too. Um, so if you could highlight a couple take-home points for listeners, uh, what are some of the uh, take-home points that this book really tries to impart? Well, I think that the thing, the, the major thing that the book is trying to impart is that the way that we have come to organize ourselves in Western thought is through cate- categories that have been assumed to be distinct and pure. And so I think about race, class, gender, and sexuality as sort of four categories that have been produced on us in order to organize our affective, emotional, and material lives. And so the thing that the book is trying to say is that these ways of organizing ourselves according to these strictures have been invented for us. And if we are going to overcome sort of the violence that inheres these categories of distinction or these categorical distinctions, we're actually going to have to think about 
what other ways have we organized ourselves that has not submitted itself to the logic of racial capital and so or racial capitalism, which is a phrase that Cedric Robinson uses, that that there are other ways that we can organize ourselves that take seriously our differences and our uniquenesses, but that does not um, assume that there are uh, that there are these distinctions that are that are not possible to be overcome, that there are these distinctions that are sort of trans-historical, that are, um, that are trans-historical, that um, span time and space, and that um, are inescapable. Um, because I think that if we organize ourselves according to the logics and the rubrics of the, the thinking of Western categories, then we have already submitted ourselves to the violence of those um, submissions. So before we sign off on that note, I wanted to ask you a bit about what's on the horizon. What projects are you working on now? I have a couple of projects. The last, um, the, the, the coda, I suppose, for the book is called Otherwise Nothing. And I began to elaborate a concept of nothing music, which is about the Hammond B3 organ and its usage in sort of black Pentecostalism. And so I, I'm working on a project now that uses that as the pivot point. Um, to, to really think about the Hammond B3 organ and this place in Black um, worship, particularly in the United States, but not just in the United States. The Hammond B3 organ has kind of been taken up to be the sound of Black church generally. And so I'm just really trying to think about sort of a project that takes seriously this instrument as a fundamental instrument to the sort of modern construction of a religious, a Black sort of Christian um, uh, collective body. What does sound have to do with it? And so that's one project. I'm also working on another project that is a, it's sort of, I call it an autobiofiction, um, the title of which is The Lonely Letters, which is a collection. It's an epistolary format um, that is sort of in the, in the same spirit of and, and derivative of, but hopefully I'm also doing some other things too, but it's, it's really made possible because of my engagement with and my total respect for and um, honor of um, Nathaniel Mackey and his work in From a Broken Bottle, Traces of Perfume Still Emanate. It's reading that, um, particularly the first installment in that collection, which is titled Bedouin Hornbook, was the first time I'd read something about music and about a band and about sort of black people that's that said to me, oh, wow, you could write about music like this? I had no idea. And so the the project that I'm working on titled Alone Letters is an epistolary from, um, there's it's one directional. We get the, the letters from the character named A, who is talking to a, a character named Moth. And he's talking about love and heartbreak. And he's talking about quantum physics. And he's talking about Christian mysticism. He's talking about other mysticisms, too, because what he's really searching for is deep connection. And these various sort of um, disciplines, these various ways of thinking the world, quantum physics, Christian mysticism, love, heartbreak, are all about deep connection, um, the the deep connection of all that is to one another. And so that's a, a second project that I'm also working on. So taking the love letter to the next next stage... Taking it to its logical conclusion, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Thanks so much for sitting down with me, Ashan, and telling me a bit about your work. I really appreciate it. Thank you for everything. It's been really great.